Well, it's cold, it's snowing, we're in the dark days of winter, and you came out to hear a sermon on Lamentations. You all must be gluttons for punishment today. (laughs) Kurt Thompson is a psychiatrist whose practice is based out of Washington, D.C. He likes to say he'll certainly never run out of business with all the politicians down there. In an interview, he was asked, if a person goes to you for help, how do you get started with them? He said, I asked them two questions. The first one really isn't all that surprising. He asks, what is it that you want? That is, what do you want to see happen in your life? What experiences do you want to be having? But the second question he asks them is this, what are you grieving in your life right now? What are you most sad about? What are you most ashamed about? In other words, what are you lamenting? Wants and laments, they go together. To understand what a person wants is to know what it is that they are grieving about. Just think about it. If someone says, I want to love, then they are saying, Their life in this moment lacks the kind of love that they feel is important to them. But it is also true that grief gives us an understanding of what is most desired. If a person says, I'm lamenting my past, they're saying, I want to live life with a sense that I'm not defective or broken. Or if they say, I'm lamenting the loss of a loved one, They want their loved one to be around. Our wants and our laments, they belong together. But it's hard to talk about our wants and laments, isn't it? Of the two, Kirk Thompson finds that most of the time his patients have difficulty answering the latter, what it is they're lamenting. And I don't think he's wrong about that, that it's harder to identify what it is we're grieving in life right now. Because lament is so difficult. It forces us to recognize that the future we imagine for ourselves may never come to pass. That relationship that was once a solid bond is now dissolved. An exciting job opportunity brought you into this area, but you miss the community that you once had at home. When you got married, you thought that your house would be filled with the laughs and cries of children, but now there is just this pain of the silence of infertility. You imagine for many years spending time with this particular person and now they are gone and all you have are past memories, no more new memories to create with them. Lament is so difficult because it forces us to look at the future through lenses we never expected to wear. And not just our future, God himself looks very different through the lens of lament. It appears that God is more distant from us. He feels far from us, and we feel so disappointed. Or in our worst moments, lament makes God look not merciful, but like a monster. How could God allow this to happen in my life? Can faith live with such a view of God? On the surface, we would say no. How could it? We often think that faith dead ends when it starts to ask hard questions of God. 
But lament is difficult because it forces us to look at faith in a very different way. Here's an image of what I mean. God's gift of faith is like a well-built bridge. In order for a bridge to hold up in the face of great weight and pressure, its two ends have to be held in perfect tension. On the one end of the bridge, we might say the hurts of life push us to lament, to say with the prophet, the Lord has become our enemy. But on the other end of the bridge, faith produces this response to God, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. That's exactly what we just did as a congregation. Lament and praise creates a stable bridge of faith. The gift of faith can handle whatever it is that God sends us our way, but it won't do that unless we allow ourselves to lament. But for whatever reason... Because of, we're, because of what we're taught about the nature of faith, we stop short of laments. But what we discover in this book of Lamentations is that the life of faith is not at odds with questioning God's faithfulness to us. Lament is not a faithless, but a faith-filled response to God. And that's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to look at three parts of a faith-filled lament. The first first thing we have to do is we have to recognize God's sovereignty. Second, we have to learn from the prophet's sorrow. And third, we have to give voice to the people's prayers. And what we're going to find is that in these ancient words of lament we will find a perfect expression, a perfect grounding for our laments even today. So let's take a look at this passage together. The first thing we must do is recognize God's sovereignty. Remember last week we said that these poems that make up Lamentations is a response to Judah's greatest national tragedy. In 587, the the Babylonian Empire ravaged the city of Jerusalem and decimated the Temple of Solomon. These poems are written by a disgraced people who were carried off into exile far away from the land that God had given them. And here's how 2 Kings 25 puts it. King Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down, and all the army broke down the walls of Jerusalem, and the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who fled to the king of, the Babel, uh, fled to the king of Babylon were carried into exile. That's the black and white historical account of what we're reading in Lamentations. And what we get in Lamentations is the -the on-the-ground perspective. In these verses, we hear the voices of victims with all the sadness and disappointment they are experiencing. And there is no question in their minds that behind this strong army of Nebuchadnezzar was the stronger hand of God, making all this calamity that they are experiencing come to pass in their midst. The poet says in verse 2, The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. 
And it's even stronger in verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. How could God do that to his own people? When God brought them out of Egypt, he said to them, Out of all the peoples of the earth, you'll be my special treasure. The whole earth is mine to choose from, but you're special to me. You'll be a kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy nation. That's what they were called to be. But for years and years, they rebelled against God. And just to give you an idea of how far they fell short of what God called them to be, of how God called them to be a holy nation, this is what God did. One afternoon, God told the prophet Jeremiah, we read this in Jeremiah chapter 5, Go walk around the city of Jerusalem. Go into the marketplaces and see if you can find one solitary individual, a man or a woman, just one person who lives according to the justice laid out in my law and who desires to know the truth. Go ahead and try to find one. Why is God doing that? Because he wants to judge the people? No. Because he said, I am eager to pardon them for their sins. But Jeremiah goes out and his search comes up empty. He can't find one person who honors God in this holy nation. They worship other gods. They take advantage of poor people from other countries. They don't even take care of their own fatherless and widowed. But they do gratify their own passions They steal, they lie to one another, and they even take innocent life away from others. And for 40 years, Jeremiah warned the people. He told them, don't think that just because you go to the temple and just because you sing songs and just because you make offerings that God does not see how you live the rest of the week. Yes, God is patient. Yes, he is slow to anger, and yes, he is most merciful, but his is a just mercy. But isn't this judgment of God just so severe? I mean, isn't there another way that he could have responded? Listen to what philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel says about this passage. Man's sense of injustice is a poor analogy to God's sense of injustice. To us, the exploitation of the poor is a misdemeanor. To God, it is a disaster. Our reaction is disapproval. God's reaction is something that no language could possibly convey. And then he asks this question. Is it a sign of cruelty that God's anger is aroused when the rights of the poor are violated, when widows and orphans are oppressed? God ordains the destruction of Jerusalem, of its walls, of its palaces, and even the temple where his presence dwells uniquely because they mean nothing to him if his people's hearts are far from him and they don't even take care of the helpless. Now, did you notice that in verses 1 and 2, God's people are called daughter of Zion, daughter of Judah, That isn't being ironic. God considers his people as dear to him as parents would their own children. 
Some of you here today who are parents to adults, adult children have had to make the very difficult decision to allow your children to experience the natural consequences of bad choices. Sometimes love means letting go with the hope that restoration would be possible. And that's what's going on here. You see, it's not just that God's justice allows Jerusalem to be punished for their sins. It's his love that allows it to happen. He wants his wayward daughter to come back to him because they've come back in no other way. That's why these events are happening in Israel the way that we've been reading about them. But all of this raises a very difficult question for us. And that is, what is the relationship between sin and suffering? What is the relationship between sin and suffering? Here's what we have to keep in mind. According to the Bible, all suffering is the result of the defect of sin. Uh, Conflicts at home, uh, potholes on Route 1, whatever you see brokenness, that is not how God created things to be. Now, some suffering, as we see in Lamentations, is the direct result of turning away from God. We give in to the devices and to the desires of our own hearts, and when we are aware of that, our lament includes repenting over our sins. But let's be very clear. Not all suffering we face in this life is because of our own sin. We live in a fallen, muddy world, and nothing, no Christian, no church, no institution, no theological system, no family, not one human body is clean of the effects of sin. And here's what we need to see. God is sovereign over all the crosses and losses of your life whether they have come to you because of your personal sin, whether it's because your suffering is the result of someone else's bad choices, or it's just because we live in a muddied, sinful world, whatever the reason sin and its effects have come upon you, God invites us to lament to him. And he can handle our laments because he is sovereign. Look, he even gives you words to lament with. That is how serious he is about inviting us to lament. Whatever your trouble and whatever reason for your trouble, you can get real with God. Theologian Kelly Capick writes this, biblically we discover that lament is a legitimate, even necessary form of fellowship with God. When we are in a place of pain, an honest and and expected expression of our battle with the brokenness of ourselves and the rest of the world is what is necessary. I want to ask you this morning, do you believe in the sovereignty of God enough to lament? Do you believe that of all the things that can happen in your life, God is big enough to handle your complaints about it. Do you really believe in the sovereignty of God enough to lament? Contrary to what we think, lament isn't a rejection of God's sovereignty. 
It's a proclamation of it. That is what we're being called to do. So first of all, we have to lament. To lament, we have to recognize God's sovereignty. That's the first part. But then the question is, what does lament look like? Well, to learn that, we must learn from the prophet's sorrow. And that's what we're going to take a look at now. From verses 11 through 18, we get a shift in perspective in the lamentation. Now, presumably, the speaker is a prophet, or perhaps the voice is even Jeremiah himself. And there are two lessons I want us to learn from the prophet's sorrow. The first has to do with our repentance, and the second has to do with reaching out to others. Lament often confronts us with issues for personal repentance. Lament often confronts us with issues for personal repentance. Look at verse 14. It says, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your uh, inquiry to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. God's people fell prey to teaching and to leaders that led them astray. They ate up the religious and political misinformation in their day that made them feel self-assured. And they went out of step with God's call on their lives. To lament means we have to learn to confront our idolatries. We can think that just because we belong to a particular denomination or a non-denomination, that somehow we are immune from the sins that other churches commit because they don't share the same view of the Bible as we do. Rather than lament and repent when we are exposed, we double down. We defend ourselves. We dig our heels instead of drop to our knees and confess our sin in lamentation. But because God is sovereign, he is able to fix the worst of the worst of whatever the church has done. There is no shame in lamenting over our sin of self-assurance. There is never any shame in repentance, only in continuing in sin. How can we possibly call other people to lament over their sins when we don't even lament over our own. Lament will also expose the idolatry in our own personal lives. You know, sometimes uh, during church services, uh, there'll be testimonies. And at one of our former churches that we were attending, a woman who was uh, widowed at 44 years old came forward and um, came to give a testimony. She had recently lost her husband to stomach cancer in a very horrific way, and she was a single mom now of two uh, teenage children. She came up to the lectern, and she said, you know, I just want to confess that the past few months have been, I've been so bitter. I'm angry at God. Notice the tense. I'm angry at God. But I've been shutting out my kids, and I've been shutting out God, and I've been shutting out other people who have been trying to be kind to me. I have just become so bitter in my lament. And then what she said next floored me. She said, I realize I've been basing the happiness of my life on a future that God never promised to give me. 
It's not that I miss my husband any less, but I just want to trust God more in the season of life I'm in, and I have not been doing that. I have no idea what the sermon was that day (laughs) in that church service, but I can tell you that that was a prophetic word that we needed to hear. You see, we will get a firmer grip on God when we lament But to do that sometimes means that we have to drop the dreams and wishes we hold on to in addition to him, or sometimes instead of him. And that's what the prophet is trying to teach us in terms of our personal repentance. But then he goes on to teach us that lament will teach us to reach out to others. Verse 11 reads, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns, and then we get this very graphic image. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. This verse doesn't make it on the Hallmark card. Let me just, let me just take a poll. How many of you would say this is your life verse? How many of you want this verse read at your funeral? Or how about your wedding? Would that be good? Would you want this read then? If you do, we need to talk. Let's talk after the service. Why do we have such a physical description of the prophet's sorrow? A common question that we ask when we're growing up is this. How do you know that you're in love? How do you know that you're in love? Maybe you find yourself thinking about the person all the time. That you want to be with them. You send notes to them or write lyrics about them. You get butterflies in your stomach when you're around them. Well, what is the prophet telling us in this verse? He's lovesick for God's people. He's lovesick for their restoration. He wouldn't be torn apart like this unless he loved deeply. What does lament look like? It looks like some of the deepest expressions of love. That's what lament is. It's a way of saying we love God and we love our neighbor. In the first couple of days, I was an intern at Westerly Road Church many years ago. I uh, went with uh, Pastor Matt to participate in a funeral service for one of of the longtime members of our church, of, of the church. And I was pretty obviously nervous. And Pastor Matt kept assuring me, don't worry, it's not your funeral we're going to. You're not the one who's dying. I really don't remember much that day. But what I do remember is that when I stood next to one of the sons, I could hear him repeating to himself, be strong, don't cry. You don't have to. Be strong, it's okay. Be strong. Now I can understand why in a public setting we don't let our laments show, but here's the truth. So often we restrict our lament, but when we do that, we're cutting off the most profound expressions of love that we have as human beings. And I don't just mean that we need to allow ourselves to lament in the face of personal loss. Certainly we need to do that. But what I mean is that whenever any of our neighbors are suffering, regardless of who they are, 
And regardless of what they believe, love demands that we lament with them, that we join them in their suffering. It isn't by accident that the gospel writers tell us that Jesus was moved with pity when he healed the man with leprosy, or that he wept before he raised Lazarus from the dead. You see, our Christian witness does not simply consist of sharing God's word with others, but it also consists of, of sharing Christ's feeling with others. Share his compassion. What stops you from lamenting with others? Is it fear of emotion? Can I really handle the emotion that's going to come if I walk alongside someone who's suffering? Is it fear of what would happen to your own faith if you got on the roller coaster of lament with somebody else? Is it fear of not knowing what to say? What can I possibly say to fix what it is this person's going through? Well, even the inspired prophet of God has trouble finding the words. He says in verse 13, What can I liken to you that I may comfort you? You see, he knows how to stand with them. He knows how to lament with them. But he does not know how to fix their sadness. But what he does is he takes them to the one who knows just how to do that. He gives voice to the people's prayers. And that's exactly what we can do. And that's what we're going to see next in the third part of lament. He directs the people to prayer. Listen to verse 18. Their heart cried out to the Lord. Verse 19. Arise, cry out in the night. Verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see. Now his prayer is offering prayer on behalf of others and directing others to pray. Is this just a religious platitude? Is he just giving hollow advice? The fact that we are reading these recorded laments today tells us otherwise. And here's why. These are the prayers and the laments of victims for victims. History doesn't do a good job of keeping alive the record of sufferers. In fact, it gets swept away so often. In Bible times, when people were conquered, their God was conquered. But here we are, 2,500 years later in Princeton, New Jersey, reading the words of the lamenters, not of the victors. Why is that? Because the greatest national, political, theological, and even personal tragedies can't stop God from turning every lament of his people into an answered prayer. Every lament we raise to God in heaven for ourselves or for others puts a stake on the earth that says, yes, God can redeem this too. The people cried out that their enemies swallowed them up. But it was through this exiled people that God sent Jesus Christ into the world. Like the prophet, he bore the suffering of their sin in his own body for us and for them. But unlike the prophet, he knows exactly how to restore what they've lost. Israel's enemies swallowed them up, 
But as we heard earlier in 1 Corinthians, Jesus Christ has swallowed up death by the power of his resurrection. He has trampled down death by death forever. In Jesus, the lamenters become the victors. You may not feel this now today where you are. You may not be experiencing the beauty of this truth in your heart today. But you will see it one day with your own eyes when he brings in his eternal kingdom. Right now you feel like the people of Israel. You're completely swallowed up. The losses you are facing in your life is tearing you apart. But whatever has swallowed you up, Jesus Christ has conquered it for you. Your record of laments will become testimonies of praise in eternity. My friends, may God give each of us the grace to express our faith-filled lament to him. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we know that all the lamentations of God's people will become an answered prayer list all the way from A to Z when his kingdom will come. And may that be our hope for us today and as we head into the eternal glory he has for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we so often don't see all the tears that your people cry. In fact, we, we try to hide them from other people. But you have gathered them all up, and you have not forgotten any of them. And so, Lord, for the many people here who are sick with sorrow and who are grieving various kinds of losses, would you grant them the hope that only the resurrection of Jesus Christ can bring them now? Help us as a community to not hold back our laments, not only for ourselves, but for our neighbors. Do not let our politics or our biases prevent us from loving our neighbors in this way. Show us the hard but glorious way of lamentation that brings us to the resurrection joy. In your name we pray. Amen.